Thank you. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Ortiz, and if you're new here, uh, please introduce yourself to me when the the, the service is over. I'd love to to meet you and and get to know you. Um, To bring you up to speed, we're in a series in Exodus, kind of marching through uh, the book of of Exodus during this particular season uh, in a series uh, called Faithful, God's Story of, of Redemption. And this morning, our topic is experiencing God. In our study of Exodus, we come to the temple this morning. And we're actually looking at the portable version of the, of the temple, the tabernacle. And we're looking at it because it teaches us how to experience God. See, the, the temple is the place. The temple is the way that people experience God. Now, we said, we mentioned this a little bit uh, last week, and that is it's one thing to know about God. It's one thing to know that God exists. It is a completely and totally different thing to experience God, right? You know what? I've noticed that the longer you become, the longer you are a Christian, the easier it is to kind of slip into Christian cruise control, Right? Where you just kind of go through the motions and then our faith becomes dead and cold because we've somehow become okay with not experiencing God. We've become cold to obeying God. We've become cold to worshiping God. We've become cold to talking to him and listening to him. And at the same time, ironically enough, I think that most people still want to experience God. Deep down, they really do want to experience God powerfully. They want to experience God personally, relationally, intimately. So this morning, my question for you is this. Where are you with that when it comes to experiencing God? Where are you with that this morning? Do you want to experience God? See, the scriptures teach us that if you are going to experience God, it must be through the temple. It must, must be through the temple. So what does this ancient text about the temple uh, mean for us today? Well, first of all, I think that the importance of the temple is seen in this. Exodus has 40 chapters. 40 chapters. 13 of those chapters, about a third, are devoted to the temple. There are seven chapters of instructions, and then there are six chapters on the actual building of it. Now, that might not sound very exciting to you. In fact, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible or you ever tried to read through Exodus, there's probably a good chance that you just kind of skim through those parts, right? But I'm telling you, it's there for a reason. And there's a significant section dedicated to the temple because it is critically, critically important. So, we're going to read about, we're going to read some of it. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 25 and Exodus chapter 40. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 1 and 2 says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution 
for me. And verse 8 says, And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Then jumping to Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 20, it says, He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle in the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then... The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, Then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Wow. So, I have a question. What in the world do we learn about experiencing God from this? Well, I think we see three lessons. One from the ark, one from the curtain, and one from the altar. And we're going to look at each of those, all right? So first, if you're taking notes, let's look at them. First, we have the ark. Now, I would be lying to you if I told you that I did not have the theme of Indiana Jones running through my head all morning. All morning. And now you're going to have it running through your head all day today, I guarantee it. You're welcome. So what is the ark? Well... The ark is a wooden box, three and three quarters feet long and two and a quarter feet wide and high. And this wooden box was covered, covered with pure gold. And on top of it was a solid gold cover called the atonement cover or the mercy seat or or the throne of grace. And at the end of each ark, overarching the throne of grace, were two solid gold cherubim. And they weren't like the American Valentine's a cherubim, you know, cute, chubby, little naked babies with wings and bows and arrow, 
right? These were impressive figures. These were different. Now, God says in chapter 25, there above the ark between the two cherubim, I will meet you. This is the most important thing about the ark. God says, I will be with you. And this ark is central, central to the temple or the tabernacle. God says to Moses, make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. So God's purpose for the temple, God's purpose is is to dwell with his people. The temple is, is the place where God meets with his people and people experience God's presence. And it was especially above the ark that God was present with Israel. So what does the ark teach us? Well, the ark teaches us that God desires to be with us. God desires to be with us. Now, now this is, this is amazing, uh, absolutely amazing. And the more you think about it, the more mind-boggling it becomes. Here is the God who created everything out of nothing. He existed before creation. He existed apart from creation. And you know what that means? It means that God doesn't need creation to be God. And that means that God doesn't need us, right? And so, (laughs) I mean, God doesn't need us, but at the same time, what's so amazing is that God, the creator of the universe and the one who holds it all together, has so bound himself to us that he desires to dwell in our midst. I mean, God longs to be with his people, And this is not some minor theme in the Bible. I mean, some theologians say that the central theme of the Bible is the Emmanuel principle. And Emmanuel means what? God with us. And you see it in the overall flow of all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. At the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see the Garden of Eden. And it was a type of temple. And in the garden, they experienced God's presence. And then you go to the end of the book, you go to the end of the Bible, and you see the book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation, you hear this loud voice proclaim, now the dwelling of God is with his people, and he will live with them. And you see the importance of it here. I mean, a third of Exodus is devoted to the temple. And God is saying, it is the highest importance to me to dwell with my people. And we see just how important it is when you see what what happens. When you read through uh, these chapters in the book of Exodus, uh, what we see is in chapters 25 through 31, God gives the instructions on how to build the temple. And then a little bit later in chapters 35 through 40, God directs them to build the temple. And in between the instructions and the building, what happens? This happens. The people make a golden calf, bow down, and worship it. I mean, can you believe that? 
I mean, God is the one who delivered them from Egypt, from slavery, from oppression. I mean, they saw him bring the ten plagues. They saw him part the Red Sea. They saw him wipe out their, their enemies. And they still make their own gods to worship? I mean, this is crazy, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of surprising that God doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth right then and there. In fact... It is right after this, right after this, that God hasn't built the temple. I mean, you think, all right, forget it, we're done. No, right after this, God has them build the temple. I mean, how can we possibly comprehend, how can we possibly understand just how much God uh, desires to be with his people, how much God is determined to be with his people? This is the God that we worship. Man. Let me ask you something this morning. Examine, I mean, wrestle with this question right here, right now. Examine your heart. Examine your life. Do you desire to be with God? Do you desire to be with God? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't know. But if you understand, here's here's. Here's what I've learned. If we understand our own personal deepest longings, then we will also understand just how deeply we actually do desire to be with God. Whether you think you want to or not, let me show you. In Psalm, in the Psalm chapter 27, the psalmist is, is absolutely filled with fear. But then what he does is he looks underneath his fear and realizes that what he's really longing for is God. And so he says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the temple of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And then in Psalm 42, the psalmist is depressed. And so he says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? But then he looks beneath his, his depression. And what he realizes is that what he's really longing for is God. And so he says this, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? And in Psalm 73, the psalmist, we see the psalmist is angry and bitter. Why? Because the wicked prosper and the godly suffer. But then what he does is he looks beneath his anger. He looks beneath his bitterness and he realizes that what he really longs for is God. And so he says this, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, here's the deal. Beneath our fear and beneath our depression, beneath our anger, beneath our bitterness, our deep longings. And beneath all of our longings is a longing to be with God, to experience God. And you know why that longing is there? You know why that desire is there? It's because God made you to know him. God made you to be close to him. God made you to experience him, to love him. To live for him. And God desires to be with you. 
I mean, it's almost crazy. So my question for you this morning, do you want to experience him? Do you want to snap out of this Christian cruise control that we so easily slip into? See, every single one of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, we do have a longing to experience God. Our emotions and our deep longings say that we do. So how do we experience God? First lesson, what we need to see um, comes from the ark that, that God desires to be with us. The second lesson we learn comes from the curtain. See, the ark was placed in a tent, and there were two parts to the tent. The, the front room was the holy place, and the back room was the most holy place. And the ark was, was placed in, in the back room, in, the, in the, the most holy place. And the two rooms were separated by a curtain. And embroidered into the curtain were more cherubim. Where else did cherubim appear? It was over the ark, right? And where else do we see that? Cherubim? At the gate of the Garden of Eden. They were placed at the gate of the Garden of Eden after the fall to prevent anyone from entering. And they were placed on the curtain for the same reason. No one, no one could enter the most holy place except for the high priest. And he could only do it once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he could only do that after his sacrifice was made. And he entered with fear and trembling that the, the fire of God's holiness might consume him. And he wore a, a robe with, with bells sewn to the bottom. And, and you could hear them, uh, these little bells ringing when, when he moved so that the people outside would know if he was still alive or not. And tradition tells us that, that they tied a rope around his ankle. Why? So that if he died, the people could drag him out without going in. How'd you like that job? Right? No pressure. Right? That's probably pretty stressful. None of the people dared to go in. So what's the curtain teach us? Well, the curtain teaches us that God desires to be with us, but our sin pre prevents it. Our sin prevents us from experiencing God's presence. Now, I know there could be someone listening to me right now thinking, you know what, Matt? I was with you on that first lesson, you know? God desires to be with us, but I totally disagree with you on this second point. I mean, my God doesn't put up curtains. My God welcomes us all. There is no curtain because my God is a God of love. Well, I tell you what, you're right. God is a God of love. And what we need to see is that God putting up a curtain is a loving thing for him to do. Okay, let me explain. All right, so I just mean, let's say your spouse has an addiction, okay? And their addiction, uh, this person that you love, I mean, you married them, and, and your spouse has an addiction, and their addiction is absolutely destroying their life and the lives of people around them, all right? What do you do? You have three options, right? One, you walk out. You're like, I don't want to have anything to do with you ever again. It's over. See you. Two, 
You stay as a codependent. You basically enable their addiction and, and you become addicted to your own destructive habits. It just might look different than, than theirs. And the third option was, would be to put up a curtain, in a sense. You say, I, I love you. And because I love you, I hate what it is that you're doing to yourself. I mean, we have to address the problem. And until you are willing to address it, I want you to realize that there's a curtain between us. Our relationship cannot be the same until you address, and, uh, this, address this problem, have a desire to address this problem. So what's the loving thing to do? One, two, or three? It's three, right? And that's the option God chooses. He doesn't walk out. And he doesn't enable our addiction. What he does is he puts up a curtain and the curtain says, I'm still here and I absolutely love you. And because I love you, I hate what it is that you're doing to yourself. And I'm here to help you address your problem. But until you are willing to admit that you have a problem, I want you to realize that there's a curtain between us. The curtain is the most loving thing that God can do. And God is saying that you have an addiction and it's destroying your life. You might be thinking, I don't have any addictions. What's Matt talking about? Kind of lost me there. You know what? We all do. We do. So what is our addiction? You know what we're all addicted to? We are all addicted to making golden calves. We are. Most people, most people, here's what most people think about sin. That, that sin is just breaking the rules. You know what? Sin goes so much deeper than just breaking the rules. Sin is making golden calves. And a golden calf is, is anything, anything that we look to other than, than God for our reason for living. And it's, it's whenever we say, you know what, without this, I can't go on. Without this, I, I can't be okay. Without this, I can't have peace. I also need this. God is not enough. I also need this. And so we, we all are addicted to making golden calves. And we start turning to the things that we think that we need to be okay. So when this incident with the golden calf happens between the two sections about the, the temple, God is showing us that the only alternative to worshiping the Lord is worshiping golden calves. It's an either or deal. See, God, God has, has hardwired us to worship. He has created us to be worshipers. We will always worship someone or something. And we will either worship God or we will worship something else. But we will worship something or someone. That's just the way it is. We're hardwired that way to be worshipers. So, let's examine our own hearts and lives, okay? Okay. What is your reason for living? If we were to study your life, if we were to study the things that you celebrate, if we were to study the things that, 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 that fill you with, with uh, bitterness or frustration, what, what is your reason for living? I mean, like, when it comes down to it, if we're brutally honest with ourselves, what is it that you look to uh, to feel a sense of significance? What is it that you look to that, to have a sense of, of a security? What is it that you look to to, to have satisfaction in life or, or, or feel good or to get the most out of life? 
you hold on to this. What is it? Well, here's the deal. Whatever it is that you look to other than God is your golden calf, okay? This is, this is just a loving diagnosis, okay? And when we have a diagnosis, then we can look to the, the solution. But let's just, God's kindness leads us to repentance, and so let's be honest with ourselves and our hearts. What is it that we need to be okay? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it can be something good. It could be something good. It could be your job. It could be your family. It could be a relationship. It could be, you know, wanting a, approval or wanting to be successful in something, achievements, a, a comfort or reputation or, or health or, or whatever it is. It could be something good. Something that we have to have in order for us to, to be okay. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, <laughs> just an example. Even just this morning, uh, God's kindness led me to repentance, and, and God used my wife, Shannon. <laughs> when we were in this room, as we were about to start, and I'm over there just double-checking my notes, and then I look up, I'm like, where is everybody? <laughs> you know? And then I step out and I look over, and, and Shannon sees me looking like, anybody else coming in? You know? And, uh, and then I, I go back to my notes, and then Shannon comes around the corner, and she says, I saw you. <laughs> she knows my heart. I've had to confess to her. You know what? You could be doing something good, providing a worship service, calling brothers and sisters together to, to, to worship God together as family, as a, as a highest priority, and helping people see that, and then turn it into an idol, something that I need to be okay, to have satisfaction. And I was going over my notes when it happened. <laughs> Do you see how easy it is? Let's not dismiss it. Let's confess it to each other. Man, it is, it is so crazy. Whatever it is that we live for other than God will ultimately destroy us. We think we need something. We go after it, and it, it cannot possibly fulfill the same way God does. And so it lets us down and rips us off, rips us off and hurts us. But we're determined. We're going to do it. That's like punching yourself in the face, right? And, and, and people around you are like, why are you punching yourself in the face? You're hurting yourself. Don't, don't do that. Don't tell me what to do. I'm committed to this. <laughs> we do that all the time. We look to other things that hurt us. And people call us out on us or out of love, say, hey, knock it off. It, it, we're really like, it's like punching ourselves in the face. God graciously gives us warning signs. You know what the warning signs are? It's drivenness. You know, it's just, it's, it's just grasping for whatever it is that you want, no matter what. No matter who you, like, steamroll over or push out of the way, knock over, whatever it is. Or it's, or it's guilt. Or it's worry. Or it's anger. Bitterness. Depression. Emptiness. All of those are big, giant red flags saying, hey, something's wrong, okay? You're about to get ripped off. You're hurting yourself and the people around you. 
And so when, when bitterness or worry creep in, God is trying to get our attention. He's saying, I love you. And because I love you, I hate what you are doing to yourself. I'm willing to help you. But first, you have to see that there is a problem. And so there's a curtain between us. So my question for you this morning is this. Have you admitted that you have a problem? Or is there something in your life that you know that you're looking to other than God and, and you're just, okay, I'll trust God with all this stuff. I'll look to God for all of this stuff. But this, I don't care what God says about this. I don't care what, is, what the scriptures say about this. I'm going to hold on to this. And I'm going to be okay with it. What is it? I, I, I'm not just trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to bring in a diagnosis saying, hey, you're punching yourself in the face. Stop. Turn to Jesus. Trust, trust God. He knows what's best for you. And he knows what's not good for you. So he'll use things like, like worry or anger, depression or feeling empty as warning signs showing us, hey, there's something else I'm turning to to be okay. So have you admitted that you have a problem? If it, uh, use this moment, this morning, to examine your heart. So God, show me the sin in my life. In other words, God, show me what it is that I'm looking to, that I'm trusting other than, other than you. My, my hope, the truth is, most of us live our lives in denial about all that. We don't even think about it. We become comfortable with that. Somehow, we've become comfortable with, with that. I mean, I know, I, I live in denial a lot. And you know what that means? It means that I need people in my life to help me see my blind spots. We all do. Every single one of us. We need biblical community, uh, people who, who love us, who love us enough to point out our blind spots so that we can experience uh, healing. And we experience healing because they point us to Jesus. And, it's, and we receive that because it's coming from somebody else who knows that they need the community and they need Jesus as well. They're not better than anybody else. So we receive it because it's given to us in a, in a, in a humble way. That's a community of grace. That's a gospel-centered community right there. We need that. You cannot change on your own. You can't. We need our brothers and sisters to press the gospel into our hearts. What do we learn here about experiencing God? Well, from the ark, we learn that God desires to be with us. And the curtain teaches us that, that our sin prevents us from experiencing God. The third lesson we learn is from the altar. Okay? Outside the tent in the courtyard, there was an altar. And there on the altar, sacrifices were made for sin. So if I lived in that time, I would bring a sheep or a, go or a goat or a, a bull. Whichever animal I brought, it had to be without defect. It was critical. It was very important that the animal was without defect because it represented a perfect, sac represented a perfect sacrifice. And then I would, I would place my hands on, on the head of the animal because I'm identifying with the animal and it meant that, that, that the sacrifice was dying in my place to pay the debt of, of, of my sin. So what does altar teach us? 
It teaches us that only a perfect sacrifice can open the way to God's presence and experiencing him. Only a perfect sacrifice can enable us to pass through the curtain. Now, I know, I know there are a lot of uh, smart and thoughtful people who, who would have a problem with this, like an animal sacrifice. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's so, so primitive. I can't believe that in San Diego today in 2015, that someone with more than a third grade education is talking about animal sacrifices. That's stupid. That's, that's ridiculous. What do you mean a debt needs to be paid? I mean, if there is a God, I'm sure you can just forgive, right? You know what? It's real easy to think that way. But God cannot just forgive. Because he can't forgive without a payment. Now think about it. Think about it. Think if someone deeply wrongs you, someone hurts you, maybe they destroy your reputation, whatever it is, but it was a deep and painful uh, uh, event in your life. Someone just, just took you out. Ever have, ever have that happen in your life? Right? And then we catch ourselves saying, oh no, you're going to pay for that. It is payback time. I will get even. Right? We know that <laughs> there's a debt. And you know what? There are only two ways to pay that debt. One way is to make them pay, right? You hurt them back. You exclude them. You degrade them. And as you do, as you do over time, theoretically, the debt is paid down and eventually it's gone, supposedly. But if you do that, do you know what happens? You end up poisoning your own soul you will become a hard and bitter person. So what's the other option? Well, you forgive them, but how do you do that? Well, when you want to hurt them, you don't. When you want to tear down the reputation to others, you don't. When you want to just dwell on the awful things that they've done to you, you don't. And it's not easy, and it's difficult. But over time, if you do that, what happens? You, your, your anger begins to fade. Why? Because you are paying the debt yourself. It doesn't just magically go away, does it? Someone, someone has to pay the debt. Look at it another way. A man is found undeniably guilty of rape and murder. A series of rapes and murders. And then the judge says, you know what? We're just going to let it slide. I think we'll just let him go. Ridiculous, right? If that happened, we'd be outraged. Because, you know, if he doesn't pay, then society will have to pay. He'd go out there and do it again, and others will think that they can get away with it, and, and there'd be more rapes and, and murders. If the guilty person doesn't pay, then we all have to pay. How much more so with God? How much more so with God? God created us. God sustains us. We owe him absolutely everything. We owe it to him to obey him and to live for him and to live for his glory. And we owe it to our neighbor to live for God and to obey him. 
So there is a debt. So how can the death of sheep and goats pay our debt? It can't. It can only point us to the one who can. Right? Same as the high priest in the temple. They are all pointers. It all points us to Jesus. And we see that Jesus is the real temple. The apostle John says in, in John chapter 1 that the word God became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled among us. Jesus is the place where God ultimately meets with his people. Jesus is the place where we experience God, and Jesus is our perfect high priest. Jesus is the one who offers the perfect sacrifice and opens the way into the most holy place once and for all time. And the Gospel of Mark says that at the moment Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So <laughs> it was torn in two, meaning it is now permanently open. Permanently open. And it was torn from top to bottom, meaning it was not man who tore it open, but it was God who tore it open. I mean, listen, do you see the reality of what it is that we're, we're talking about here? I mean, God has thrown the door into his presence wide open. Why? How? Because the perfect sacrifice has been offered once and for all time. God has paid our debt, and he has paid it in full. And as a result, the moment you trust in Jesus, you have immediate access to God. Uh, you have intimate access to God. All of our sin, past, present, and future, all forgiven. And God, the, the, our holy God creator, sustainer of the universe, welcomes you. And he embraces you. And he loves you with the same love that he has for Jesus. And it doesn't matter how good you think you are. We cannot enter without Jesus. And it doesn't matter how bad you are. If you trust in Jesus, the door into God's presence is wide open. The, the author of, of Hebrews uh, makes the, the application, I think, pretty clear to us. The author writes this. He says, since we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not with trembling, right? Like the, the Old Testament priest, but with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen, I know that sometimes the good news seems too good to be true. But it is. It is absolutely true, and it doesn't depend on how you feel about it. God desires to be with you. <laughs> he has created you with a desire to know him, a longing for him, to experience him. And all of your desires point to and can only be fulfilled 
in an intimate relationship with God. But we owe him a debt that we cannot pay. So God in his great love paid it himself. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserve, forsaken by the Father, so that we might get what he deserves, which is intimacy, closeness with the Father. And as a result, one day, one day, all of your deepest longings will be fulfilled. And even now, in this moment, this morning, he invites you into his presence. Even now, we can have a glimpse of that day, a taste of that day, and we can experience God. So it all comes, experiencing God, it all comes down to this. Have you trusted Jesus? If not, I urge you to do that today. By faith, in a sense, you reach out and place your hands on the Lamb of God, Jesus, saying, Jesus is my perfect sacrifice. His death pays my debt in full. I'm trusting him and him alone. I urge you to do that this morning. And for those of, of you who already have, let me urge you, all of us, to continue to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy and receive grace, as the author of Hebrews says, to help us in our time of need so that our entire life, our entire life, not, not most of our life with the exception of this and this, but our entire life is an act of worship. So, how will you worship God this week? How will you glorify our holy God with your life this week, with a sense of freedom and confidence? How will you worship him starting right now in this moment as we're together as brothers and sisters communing with God and one another? Jesus has made it possible for us to boldly enter into the presence of God. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for your amazing grace. We worship you for your amazing grace. We are filled with gratitude because of your amazing grace. Heavenly Father, I just pray that, that you would overwhelm us this morning and, and fill us with a sense of awe of, of who you are, that you, the, the creator and the sustainer of, of the universe, desires to be in a relationship with, with us, your, your people. I mean, God, I just pray that, that we would, I don't know, that that would become more real to us. God, please just snap us out of our, our Christian cruise control and help us to, to see with, with fresh eyes um, who you are and what you've done for us. God, for, forgive us for the areas in our life where, where we just don't trust you. We're trusting something else to have fulfillment in life. Things that, that may be good or things that you just blatantly tell us in your, in your word are just harmful to our soul because it's, it's sin. It's idolatry. Thank you that you're so patient with us. 
God, give us a sense of urgency to want to trust you so that we stop hurting ourselves and the people, people around us. Start hurting our souls. God, help us to, to look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us to look to you for our comfort, to you for our satisfaction, to you for our, our security. God, make our lives um, all about worshiping you, glorifying you. God, we thank you. God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that has not yet put their faith in you and trust in Jesus as their perfect sacrifice, that this morning would be the morning that, that you open their hearts and let yourself in. God, I just pray that, that uh, you would give them the, the, the courage to trust you, to follow you. And God, for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would enable us to, to, to grow in Christ-likeness. To grow in our in holiness because you are worthy. And God, may we do it with a sense of, of freedom, with a sense of, of joy, with zealous faithfulness. And we pray these things in your name. <clears throat>